for this very, very special episode. Uh, we're joined by Robert Demery. I'm going to introduce who's in the room, though. Anne. Hi. Rob. Aloha. And Ben is on the line. Hi. Happy to be here. And then, of course, the one and only man, the myth, the legend, Robert Demery <laughs> is joining us. Hello. <laughs> All the way from the UK. <laughs> Love it. So Robert Emery is a writer, editor, and when he gets the chance, musician. He was general editor on the Mammoth 1001 albums You Must Hear Before You Die, which continues to provoke arguments and inspire podcasts nearly 20 years <laughs> after the original edition was published. His most recent books include Cult Musicians, 50 Progressive Performers, You Need to Know, Lives of the Musicians, David Bowie, and Music Quake, The Most Disruptive Moments in Music. He lives in London with his family and too many guitars. It's a pleasure to have him on the show. Uh, welcome, Robert Emery. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here, Birch. Uh, I have to have one quick question. How many guitars is too many guitars? <laughs> oh, well, probably not too many by other people's standards. Um, I would say I would say there's about seven or eight. Sometimes I come into a room and I, there's one there, and I think, oh, I've got one. I've got that. I've forgotten about that one. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a real soft spot for jingly jangly guitar. So I've got a Fender Tele uh, and I've got a Rickenbacker. Yeah. Sometimes the Rickenbacker, I just get it out and I look at it and I go, ah, and then I just put it away again. I've got a four year old son, and what he has a habit of. Uh, if I sit down at a piano or I pick up a guitar, he goes, Daddy, Daddy, I want to go. He comes, he takes it over, he gets bored with it in five seconds, and then he goes away again. But he says, Daddy, come on, come on. So I go, I have to put the guitar back in the case again, block the case, and go off with him. So I don't play very much these days. But, yeah, I'd say about seven or eight. Okay. Seven or eight guitars. <laughs> Sounds awesome. Uh, so I got the book, beautiful book. Uh, this is, what, Flexi Band on the cover? Yeah. And yeah, uh, has a, like a UV uh, gloss. I'm a very tactile person, so I, yeah. I love having it here. Beautiful color photos. And, and yeah, the layout's really nice. I thought it was really well done. Um, oh, great. I just wanted to ask, you know, what was your inspiration for, for writing the book? Well, it's it. There's a kind of a, a practical reason and a le and a more a more general reason, really. I suppose the practical reason is there's a series of books that the publisher does, um, and it's to do with different areas of culture that have um, focusing on disruptive moments. That the subtitle of the book, I suppose, I should mention that to give a bit of context. It's Music Quake: The Most Disruptive Moments in Music, and uh, the publisher has also done. So the publisher being Francis Lincoln has done uh, books on uh, art, disruptive moments in art and film or what have you. So part of the reason was because they said to me, do you think there's, you know, what's the mileage for doing one on music? I said, yeah, of course we can do yeah. one on music. So, mm -hmm. uh, But also I, I think I wanted to use it as an opportunity to introduce people to different areas of music, you know, different areas of music, I guess, that I'm interested in, um, but that if you were a pop and rock fan, you might not necessarily be familiar with and to show that there's you know disruption people sometimes think of say classical music as a bit old and tired but that there's plenty of disruption in classical music or or jazz for that matter that feeds into mainstream rock mainstream pop and to just to trace out to pull out a few threads of that tapestry and say well you know you, you could trace a lot of this happening today back to that happening a hundred years ago yeah so yeah. that was that was one that was one of the reasons to sort of tease out some of the the connections some of the, the 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 things that underlie music as we understand it today yeah and i think that runs through the previous book you know or 
your other book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before yeah. You Die. I mean, I think that's one of, I say that constantly, that's probably the one of the biggest benefits of going through that book chronologically yes. is that you see something happen and then you see how it, you know, makes these, like the, uh, impact, the of impact of that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. I'm, I'm glad. Yes. Thank you. We'll move on to that later, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I enjoyed reading this book because I feel like the scope of like moving through time that it gave informs like looking at the albums book too, right? Yeah. Like this is a great survey of kind of like movements through things, which helps you have a broader view of like what's happened in music over the course of like the time covered in it, which is great. Yeah. Thank you. I, I hope so. And just again, to give a bit of context within the book, we have the, there are, I've, I've chosen 50 disruptive moments quote unquote to talk about and usually those are pieces of music but they could be a live performance it could be a concert but also there are little um little essays to put things in context to say okay this is what's happening in music this is a bit of a wider picture so at the start of each chapter you'll get an introduction explaining what was what else was going on in the world sometimes it's more biased towards what was going on in music at the time sometimes it's just more general tracing kind of like you know social trends and things that were changing in society at the time to try and put the music again you know in a bit of context and there are there are timelines dotted through as well to help you kind of place yourself as you go through yeah i thought that was a really interesting approach to it also i noticed that you could slip in a few extra artists or a few extra albums in those contexts because you could you know not only talk about you know maybe public enemy but you could slip in nwa um but maybe it wasn't that 150 you know it, it does give a broader context because of a lot of these movements don't have a singular album that really defines that that movement or that dis disruption it has it's more yes. of you know a whole context in there so yeah i thought it was yes, good. Yeah. good good i've got a question for you robert when sure. when the premise was was pitched i know that yeah you mentioned there was uh there's also like the uh Art Quake, Film Quake, etc. When the premise for Music Quake was pitched, did you have moments that just immediately rose to the top of your head? Like, oh, these are definitely going to be the first ones that I'll include. Or how did the like what was the first stuff that that jumped into your head when when you were trying to think of disruptive moments in 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 music? Okay. When I think of disruption, I think of punk, really. Yeah. Punk or rap. Punk or Public Enemy, um, you know, or, or things in the in the vein of Public Enemy, but so so they would have they would have leapt to mind first. So I thought, well, there has to be something by a a, a major punk band in there, uh, at least one. There has to be something. I have to get Public Enemy in there because Public Enemy were all about kind of articulate rage, and informed rage as well. So there's there's something just uh, you had to have them in. But also, I think. I, I then I began to think about other things and, and you can have disruption in terms of um, technological disruption, the way people are using or misusing a recording studio, the way they're using or misusing bits of kit that they've got that they might be, I don't know, taking apart the synth they've got and fiddling with it and making it make new sounds. Or, you know, you could talk about going back to the early days of hip hop, what, of, <clears throat> excuse me, of hip hop, what they were doing with vinyl, scratching and, and sort of, you know, um, and and then sampling as well. All of those those are disruptive. Those you're you're mis you're you're misreusing for creative reasons a piece of kit that was intended to be used for something else. So that occurred to me as well. 
Uh, but also, I I like to I kind of I've got, I've got a lot of time for um, for want of a better word classical music as well, uh, especially the mavericks in classical music like John Cage or um, Stravinsky. And I start this book with a particular concert, a premiere in 1913 in France, where Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, was, which is a ballet score, was first performed. And it caused a scandal. It caused a riot. And I'm, I'm going back to things like that and saying, well, as, why was that? And um, it, it's important for us to realise that rock and pop doesn't have a, a monopoly on, uh, on disruption. The disruption can come right. It can come in very obvious ways as well, and it can come in less obvious ways. One of the one of the albums I mention in the book is uh, Miles Davis's "Kind of Blue." Now, there's nothing aggressive about that album. There's nothing um, confrontational about that album in a way. So, in that context, it's not disruptive, but it disrupts people's expectations. It certainly disrupted people people's expectations at the time because he was coming in off the back of hard bop and bebop, which is lots of kind of clusters of notes. It's very thick, very thick musical textures. Um, you had to be really on your on your stuff to know how to play that stuff. And he 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 was on the fringes of that and he did play some of that, use that style, but then he took it all down. He like, he broke it all down. He sort of took a lot of the things. It was like he had a painting and he started scraping bits of color off, too much color, less color. Let's take it back. Let's strip it down. And then you end up with something that's beautifully sparse, very easy on the ear, but, but because of the way he put it together was a whole new starting point for jazz. And that's disruptive too. It's a it's a soft revolution. It's not a it's not a loud revolution. Yeah, speaking in the context of you know modern uh, modern people, you know disruption can be based on something like the status quo expectations for music. Uh, you know, in our modern context, do you think it's harder for an individual artist to be a disruptor now? Or, you know, because everything's kind of been done. You know, we have post postmodern things like that. Do you think it's harder or easier? Yeah, I think it's I think it is harder. Um, I think because the a lot of the big statements have been made, haven't they? A lot of the big it's like you could you could again, you could think of it as a as a painting and you make the bold, big, impactful marks and strokes and colours, first of all, and then you're filling stuff in. And then there's a little bit of a variation on what you did originally. It is I think it is quite difficult. And I think the uh, this was a challenge for me putting together this book. How do you. What could you uh, define as disruptive these days? I mean, is anything going to be as disruptive as the the Sex Pistols were, or or Iggy uh, back in the day in the sixties and seventies, or or the you know the early sort of very confrontational hip hop? Is anything going to be as you know as disruptive as NWA or, or Public Enemy? And I think you have to you have to almost redefine what disruption means now. Just to me now, disruption might mean the way an artist decides to release an album, the format an artist uses for that album. Yep. Does the artist start to say, okay, I you know we've we've had twelve songs or whatever per twelve inch final album for a very long time. What about adding a visual element element to that? Yeah. What about adding something that you wouldn't get if you were just buying a normal you know, vinyl album or CD back in, you know, as we're used to doing. Um, how do they, how do artists play with releasing albums? And I'm thinking of people there like, and I, I, I talk about people like Beyonce with her album, Beyonce, which was, when was that? 2013, I think. Or obviously Radiohead mm -hmm. or Björk, who says, okay, I'll give you an album, but I'm going to give you an app. It's going to be an app album. 
And you think, oh, okay, well, what would that look like? How would that work? Which and, it, and the way it works is it's 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 a really nice kind of interactive step forward for albums. It's not a step that anybody, many other people, if anybody, has actually followed, which makes it you know equally ripe for discussion. I think. Yeah, absolutely. We focus on on the album format so much in our podcast because we, we're discussing the one thousand one albums book. Yes. Do you think that at this point of the twenty first century? with with streaming services with with everything to be considered do you think that the album format needs to adapt or die or do you think that folks can continue releasing cohesive statements in just like a 45 minute 10 to 12 song format well i think it's interesting i think we're at a point we have been at a point for a while where kind of for the first time in 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 musical history ever since i would say streaming kicked in so i i would say i would say from the late 1990s to well from from the late 1990s where we've got a, a kind of like cracks in in what had previously been an unbreakable bond between an artist and their fans because all of a sudden artists could uh, fans can cherry pick what they want and for an, from an artist's point of view uh, an album is very um it's very satisfying because you've got it's just about, you know, well, how long do they last? About 40 minutes or so on vinyl, 45 minutes, something like that. It's quite, it, it doesn't require too much commitment on your part as a listener, but you can do quite a lot as an artist. You can stretch out, you can expand, you can cover a lot of ground. And from a from a, a lot of, from the perspective of a lot of fans, of course, you know, well, yeah, that's all well and good, but I don't want the whole album. I just want to cherry pick the best. That's like I want to create my own best of of every album and I might pay for that or I might not pay for that. So all of those things, first, the very fact that, you know, when you have Napster, the introduction of Napster, you suddenly have the possibility of fans doing the dirty on their on the artists that they're meant to love by just saying, OK, if I can get it for free, I'll get it for free. You know, if it's there, I'll use it or or, or if they're going to be slightly more legit about it download it but not download the whole album so there is for the first time there was this kind of division between the people who who love those artists and love their music and the artists themselves because that then they're not kind of singing on they're not singing to the same hymn sheet if you like i -hmm. personally think that i think the vinyl album is about as good a format as you'll ever get for the album because you can do something, you've got artwork, it, it, it makes sense. Artwork makes sense at a 12 by 12 inch format. Artwork doesn't really make sense as a CD cover with a bit of plastic over the front. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. It's 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 convenient, but art isn't, con- great art, it's never about convenience. A great art is about saying, look, this is the big, this is the biggest statement I can make. I'm gonna do this. For me personally, probably vinyl, with um you know with 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 uh with all of that entails maybe a download code if you want to have convenience you know if you can get vinyl with a download code so you can you can listen to it when you're on the move or what have you that's great but as a physical object you just you just want to have i just want to have the thing in front of me you know if i can if i'm buying an old album i'll always try and seek out the original format if it was a gatefold i'll try and find it on gatefold because i i, I want to see what the artist originally had planned you know what they how they wanted to present it in the first place i remember seeing hearing a, an interview with paul mccartney once and he said when we were younger we would go into town on the bus to liverpool center and we'd get an album and we would just scrutinize that album on the way back 
before you even got home and you put it on a record player, you know, before you got it on the turntable, you would look at the cover. What what are they wearing on the cover? Are there any words on the cover? There are liner notes. If there are, what are the liner notes telling me? You know, because so the whole adventure begins on the cover itself. And of course, mm-hmm. some covers are just work of, works of art, like the, you know, the Blue Note jazz covers, famously, for example, off the top of my head. You could just look at them for yonks. You can frame them and put them on your wall before you even get to the music inside. So with McCartney, he was, I think his argument was, well, look, when we got to something like Sergeant Pepper, we wanted something you could just pour over. You can just look at, oh, look at that. Oh, he's there. Oh, she's there. Oh, wow. And look at all of this. And what and you know, they're kind of they're kind of playing games with you in a nice way. They're 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 sort of saying, you yeah, know, look at all of this. This is like a little toy shop, this uh this album cover. You know, knock yourself out. Uh, yeah. So for me, it's still I, I know what you're saying, and and I'm probably I'm probably going to be proved wrong, and and you know eventually people will just stop buying vinyl, I suppose, one day, many hopefully many many years from now. Um, but there is you know there are encouraging little revivals here and there. I mean, it's still a bit of an underdog, isn't it, in in comparison to mm-hmm. to downloads and streaming, especially streaming. But it's um it's it's making a bit of a modest comeback, and you know long may that continue. So I'm very much an, a vinyl album man. You're yeah. in good company in this room. I, I believe I can speak for all of us. We appreciate the the, the tactile format. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I worked for yeah. a vinyl uh, production company for a while and I saw, uh, you know, early, or I said, what, 2010. And I saw the sort of transition for artists when they were, you know, had to adapt to that. Um, so yes. a lot of them were doing more special editions, right? It was all about the different editions, which goes back to, you know, Mud Honey's different uh, colored vinyl. So it's all yeah. about the limited edition, getting the certain colored vinyl and, and kind of creating that, uh, you know, what you say, collectability for, for the people who really want it. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. You know, they're now talking about... Um, compostable and biodegradable vinyl have you seen that <laughs> no i haven't yeah, yeah it's a it's a what? new thing it's very it's a very very early stages i mean it makes a lot of sense because although we love vinyl vinyl's not particularly good for the the environment yeah not necessarily there's now um i don't know where it started somewhere in somewhere in northern europe i think that they're developing these plants where they can make biodeg uh, re mm, what am i talking recyclable reusable vinyl which is which is a terrific idea, you know. Yeah. As long as it doesn't affect the quality of the sound, the warmth of the mm-hmm. sound, the crispness that you get from vinyl, I think it's a fabulous idea. Yeah. Oh yeah. No. The the uh, on the vinyl tip, like the disruption that Napster caused and the eventual downfall, we had a we lost a lot of uh, like independent record shops over the course Ooh. of like the the aughts. And then come, you know, the teens, uh, the only re- the resurgence has happened and it's all been because of vinyl, like yeah. the uh, yes. the collectors are coming in and it's it. Yeah, the, the the resurgence of independent record shops, at least around here, is absolutely like due to the sale of vinyl records. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. Uh, uh, during your lifetime, you know, what's the biggest shift you th- or disruption that you've experienced? Um, well, I think it was. I think it's digital music. Going back to that again, I think it's what what happened with, because you know when CDs came in or or before, yeah when CDs came in that didn't. I mean, it, vinyl sales started to go down then, but it was still a hard format you could hold, and it had artwork on it. You know, so it was a version of an album. But then when you get Napster and you get file sharing, that was massively disruptive. And I think I think the industry took a long, long, long time to even start to come to terms with the impact of what that meant. 
And I think, you know, in terms of what that meant for, we've now got to the stage, of course, where they recognise that and, you know, they've sort of got on board with streaming. But in terms of the artist, the aftershocks of of, of the digital revolution are, are like sort of vastly reduced royalties. Um, it, yeah. it it really it really it has an it's had an incalculable effect on 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 uh, on musicians' livelihoods. I think, um, and uh, so I think I think that you know streaming downloading suddenly the total. <laughs> It's weird. It's like the Emperor's New Clothes in a way, isn't it? Streaming. It's like you've got the music, but there's nothing to go with the music. There's nothing tactile. Nothing you can. I was saying to my wife earlier. I was saying I've got I've got lots of vinyl, and I've got lots I've got lots of CDs, and I've got loads of stuff that I've downloaded. But I don't know where all of that downloaded stuff is because some of it will be like on a computer that just stopped working one day, and <laughs> and and you've got some of it on a cloud somewhere, but not all of it. And then I've got some of it on my phone. I've even got an old iPod that still works that I have plugged in because I've got some stuff on that that I don't have anywhere else. And mm-hmm. and, and you sort of think, I, what's really satisfying about having a hard format like vinyl is I know I, I, if if it's in the house, I'll find it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to lose those. I'm not going to lose those albums. You know, I'm not going to lose use the vinyl. I feel like a like I feel like I'm a doomsday prepper when it comes to my music collection. <laughs> I'm I I I. I never want to take the availability of streaming something online for granted. I'm always like, but what happens when the whole system goes down? <laughs> what will I listen to? I need to, I need to have this backed up on hard copies right next to my buckets of beans. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. What happens is you know somebody who has built a server and is great at file management. <laughs> so, oh, oh, yeah, I guess I, I guess that is, that I'm glad that I know you guys. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that's, that I know Rich too. Yeah. That's got to help. Yeah. So I would say that I would say that digital music, the digitization of music, I would say. Yeah, I will say, too. I mean, we've been going through the book, going through the albums. And one of the things that I find very, very frustrating um, with streaming or with digital music is the addition of extra songs or adding, you know, new things in there that were not on the original album. You know, when you have the original album format, you have the CD, you have the album, it's you put it on, you listen to the album, you're done. Uh, When it goes to streaming, sometimes they'll even throw you to a different album or they'll play those extra songs that were, you know, some B-side cut or something extra. And you kind of, I've caught myself many times thinking, wait, is this the end of the album? Like, where did it stop? Where, where, where's, yeah. this, where's the original album like actually finished? Yeah. That damn Einstrasen yeah. Neubauten record, <laughs> like the digital release has 30, 40 more minutes <laughs> worth of just yeah. hard noise. And if you're not paying attention, you're just, you're just listening to that on? hard noise. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it can be confusing. Yeah, it can be, and also, you know, the original album had an integrity to it, and it was programmed in a certain way. You know, yeah. the, the tracks ran in a certain way because that's the way the artist wanted them to. And it's kind of nice to have a few extra bits and bobs, and at the same time, it does sort of start to fiddle with that original integrity. I think it becomes detached from the historical oh. aspect of it, right? Like yeah, the, an original one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would be down with. I don't know, but if this was built into the streaming software. Like a 10 second gap in between the last song on the album and whatever they're gonna throw me next. So I so I have the those bookends of of the of the actual original artist statement, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you can stop there if that's if that's what you want, you can stop there and you'll get the original. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good idea. 
just do one more for Music Quake. Uh, are there some events that were on the cutting room floor that you were like, oh man, that was that almost could have been in the book, but you know, just outside? Or- yeah. Oh yes, Birch. There were there were many. <laughs> um, there were uh, so. I think some, wherever possible, if there was something I thought, oh, but I just can't, I can't ha- just have that book without mentioning this at all. I have to put a mention of it in there. I have to put, even if it's in the context of something else, I have to try and shoehorn some stuff in, which I did for things like The Beatles' Tomorrow Never Knows. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I did it with Delia Derbyshire. Delia, I don't know if she means anything to you over there, but Delia Derbyshire was this pioneering uh, woman, kind of what, engineer in the 60s who worked for the something called the BBC Radiophonic Workshop which was which was basically the the department in the BBC that came up with funny noises for programs <laughs> or you know especially if it was like a sci-fi program and she famously did the original theme tune for Doctor Who or she took uh she took a a theme that had been written by a guy called Ron Ron Granger I think his name was and she um and then she just made it very very weird and 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 pre-psychedelic and that's this that's the that's the that's basically still the theme, uh, although they've done new versions of it for um, for Doctor Who today. And she uh, she was doing b- brilliant work, brilliant enough for um, Paul McCartney to come down and and, and talk to her um, and see what she was up to. But because she was a woman and because she was looked on as a kind of a just an employee at the BBC, she wasn't really credited for any of the stuff that that she did. Mm. Um, so she's in there uh, in the context of electronica. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, you know, in terms of cl- classical music, I could have had Georgi uh, Ligeti, who's a Hungarian composer who you might know from the very strange screechy bits in 2001, A Space Odyssey. He's a he's a that uh, Charles Ives, Charles Ives, the American composer who would combine just totally different pieces of music in one piece of music. Like mm-hmm. jarring, so then different tech, not just different textures. Oh no, not just different textures, just whole different discrete pieces of music piled one on top of another. And you think, what the heck? So it's like you've, 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 you don't, you're, you're being, um, you're being overwhelmed with different kinds of music, you know. I mean, that was odd. Schoenberg, Arnold Schoenberg, he yeah. was a very early 20th century guy who I, I mentioned in the book. Uh, but I could have got I could have I could have had more of him in um, that. I've got a massive, massive soft spot for the Jesus and Mary chain. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> because, but, yeah. Well, yeah. I love I love the Mary chain. And for me, um, you could almost just have the first single by the Jesus and Mary chain. That would tell you pretty much everything you need to know about what makes the Jesus and Mary chain important, which is upside down. And it's it's brilliant because it's a bit like a Phil underneath it all. There's kind of a phil specter song going on or something uh and but over the top of that you've got these throbbing migraine inducing kind of tribal drums and you've got squalls of feedback it's like you know you're singing in a in a storm but the storm just happens to be feedback and distortion but it's brilliant and they look like as i, th- I think i mentioned in music Bay, they look like the children of the velvet underground yeah. they're all yeah. about <laughs> yeah. and Very leather much so bird's nest hair they just look they just look fantastic um so but i i i had to try and space out the events that i talk about in this book as evenly as i could because it would be so easy to overpopulate certain year can you you guys you four can you think of any one year where you could just think oh well if i was going to write about this year there are five things there are six there are seven there are ten artists albums pivotal releases 
first the year that comes to mind would be 1991, 92, yeah, yeah, 91, and 97, I think. Uh, Pearl Jam's would, 10, Soundgarden's Motorfinger, Nirvana, Nevermind, uh, uh, Metallica, 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 all this came out within was it, six yeah. months or so. Yeah, it was it's insane. I would, I yeah. would say 1977. Oh, yes, yeah, and I think we must have some telepathic thing going on here because I was just thinking 77 that, that I was thinking Kraftwerk and, and mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. you know, Clash's first album, Nevermind the Bollocks by the Pistols, you know, uh, it's yeah, some of them are weirdly overpopulated, but I can't like I, I have to I have to sort of discipline myself in this book and think, OK, I can't have like 10 things in 1967 because that'll only leave me 40 for yeah. the years 1913 to now. Let's get it. Let's get a sequel book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess. There you so go. you have to. Like, so I, I, you know, things like Aretha, <laughs> Aretha Franklin's uh, respect. I mentioned that in the book, but I, I haven't done an independent uh, entry on that because I was talking about something else. Uh, the message I haven't I haven't covered the message by Grandmaster Flash, but I have covered another gr- equally important, in my opinion, Grandmaster Flash release that happened before it. So there's you know hard choices really. So yeah, plenty plenty on the cutting room floor. Uh, Brian Eno, Eric Sarti. I've got a list here. Eric Sarti, <laughs> Zappa, lots of Frank Zappa I could have put in. I did the Birds Eight Miles High which is very close to my own heart. I um, couldn't put that in. Joy Division, you know, there's stuff that these guys, these artists are mentioned in the book and not just their names. You know, I I do mention a little bit about these entries that I had to cut out because I couldn't bear not to, but I didn't, I wasn't able to give them the space that I wanted to. about the book that inspired our show yeah we're we're coming up Which on a great number 500 great robert we're, we're we're almost halfway through this thing yeah. good stick with it it gets better yeah yeah um, it's better. um the thank you it's a great honor i should say that it's a great oh honor to yeah. that book would would when it I, I think it's like it is like when you do you release an album you know you put the album out in the world and then you don't really know what the world's going to make of the album you only find out what the album's like in a sense by finding out what people think of it and the fact that this book has an afterlife and that uh, good folks such as yourself are still in sort of finding enjoyment out of it that means a lot to me it really does oh great that's Th- wonderful this book has had such uh, outside of the book itself just the the effect it's had on my life and my friend's life because of the time of my life that this book entered my life uh birch actually gave me the copy of this book at my bachelor party in 2017, <laughs> we've all right. been fr- we've all been friends since the the turn of the last century. Like we yeah. we've been friends for 20 years now. I got the we got this book in 2017. We got the uh, Birch actually started the conversation of like we should do like a book club. We should just talk about this, and while we're doing it, we should just 
record it for posterity. In the last five years, you know, like I've gotten married, I've gotten a kid, I've gotten different jobs. It would be very easy for me to be spending less of my time talking music with my friends like I've been doing yeah. for the last 20 years. But this book and this podcast, it gives me a reason to make the time once a week to meet with my friends I've known forever and talk music just like we did when we were 19 years old. And for that, I will be eternally grateful because, you know, it, 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 in a parallel universe, I could just have my head down at work, be busy with kids and be letting these relationships get cold, you know? Mm -hmm. and so I very much appreciate that this book has become a part of my life and is helping keep my friendship strong. <laughs> well, I, you know, I never, I never even factored that in when I was writing it. But um, <laughs> not writing it, I should say, editing it, because it's. I didn't write the book. I well, I didn't write. I wrote some entries in the book, but I had an amazing team of writers that um, that uh, put the book together with me. So I should, I should make that point. Yeah. yeah. So I, I work in publishing. I'm actually really curious if you could like give a brief description of like how the editorial process worked for the book, like. <laughs> I'm sure it was a massive undertaking. So like, how did you, how did you do it? <laughs> we, uh, well, I worked very closely with the guy who did, which version of the book have you got, by the way? First. The first, the very, for the one with mm -hmm. craft work. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the guy I uh, work with mainly. I think ours has like a headphone guy. Oh, it's God, good. yeah. The, the kid wearing headphones. Yeah. Look, this is yeah. The, Maybe a different America. This versus... is the, this oh. is the version oh. of the <laughs> Version. Interesting. Yeah. And this, the, I work with the um, I work very closely with the art director on this book to to, to do the design for the book and um, and to uh, and also to choose do the initial pass through the, the 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 albums that might go in it. Obviously, as with Music Quake, there were lots of stuff, lots of albums we had to sort of push to one side uh, to make room for others. But he, um, we worked together. He actually, you know what, Craftwork, Craftwork have that reputation for, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the US, yeah, that's, I remember that was the US version. So, oh man, the UK version is so much cooler. It is yeah. cooler, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> buy the t-shirt, folks, buy the t-shirt. I, yeah, I would buy that t-shirt, it's good. <laughs> um, so I worked with this guy, his name is Tristan Delancey. He works for a publisher now called uh, Thames and Hudson in the UK, which do a lot of very fine kind of arty books. And anyway, he, he actually... Craft work, craft work are notoriously fussy about what you do with their stuff. And uh, he tech, he faxed them, I think, uh, and got in touch with them and said, look, we would like to do uh, this. This It's a variation on a very famous picture of craft work, this, but with the headphones added. He, he told them, he said, we'd like to do this um, this kind of take on your stuff is that all right and he waited and he waited nothing and he waited nothing and eventually this fax rolled through and it just had the word yes <laughs> perfect <laughs> yes so we got the official and we got the official okay to put that on the cover which is great. so we chose a lot and that between us tristan and i and then we started working with i started recruiting various writers uh we did that we both knew i used to do some work for time out magazine in london so i knew some music writers from there and they would put me in touch with other people um and you know before long you were you were put you know 
through a friend of a friend, you were talking to somebody, think, oh, my God, he's going to he's going to contribute to this book. That's amazing. I love his stuff or her stuff, you know, yeah. and that's how it happens. So we pull together. And in the course of pulling in writers, we would say to them, OK, so would you like to write about this particular album? They'd say, oh, oh no, I'd much prefer the same artist did a much, much better album and you should have this album in. And. You know, there's a certain amount of subjectivity in these decisions, of course. But you think, well, if you're passionate about an album and you can convince me that you think this album's worth having in there over another album, do it and convince the reader, too. And, and, and you know, let's you know build an argument for it. I'd be happy to hear it. So we so it was a it was a collaborative uh, effort. I made the initial choice with Tristan and then we sifted that choice through the various writers that we work with. I think that's the best way. And we work with a lot. I think there's about, must be about 30 or 40 writers. And they, when they're not just UK and US writers, they're, they're, there's a few from, you know, elsewhere in the world. As well. I'm, I'm slowly learning all of their names by the acronyms <laughs> from going through the book. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that's definitely. A, um, yeah. Uh, so since this was released, you know, before streaming was widely available, how did you kind of access the broad selection to make the decisions, did you have you know access to a library, or or did people just bring in you know what they thought was the best at the time from the albums that they had? I think we, uh, I mean, we had. I've got a fairly big record collection. Tristan <laughs> sure. did as well. The, the, the writers that we're talking about, uh, you know, they 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 would they would bring their own personal experience to the party, I suppose, as well as, as as to what they thought the best would be. You're right. Actually, thinking back on it, we didn't have access to sort of like, you know, the um, yeah. the virtual library of the Internet to sort of choose from. So I don't know how we did it, but we just we did, it was it was really just if you spend long enough loving music, you tend to get a feel for what's good and bad. And if you don't know where, I mean, you know, I wouldn't pretend to be an expert on every genre of music there is, but you tend to get a feel for stuff. And then that, you know, once you get into it and you then you start to deal with a writer who really is an expert in that region, but then they'll say, oh yeah, actually, if you're going to, if you're talking about hip hop from 1988, then you've got to have this and you've got to have that and sort of, and then the picture begins to sort of, you know, it kind of evolved as it went along the book. It evolved a lot. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot. Have you heard all the albums in the book? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, well, this is where all any cred I ever had. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I can retract I know, that question. <laughs> I, no, I have, I've heard as much as it's possible for one man on his own to hear, but I haven't heard all of them. I haven't heard all of them. Some of them... That would be because personal taste. It would be because I know it floats a lot of people's boats, but it doesn't float mine. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, um, I, out of a professional kind of duty, I, li I listen to as much as I possibly can. And that applies to the revisions as well. This this book, happily, this book has been regularly revised since I think 2005 was the first edition. Yeah. So there's now there's a new one. The latest one we have, when's this from? 2000 and blah, blah, blah. stick with me, don't go away. <laughs> this is um, two, This is last year, 2021. So this is the latest, this is a UK one. Okay. Mm -hmm. It really does have cover. that split thing down the middle. Yeah, like yeah. A, almost like a spot varnish. And so this one, the last entries in this one are people like Lana Del Rey's Kentrails Over the Country Club. Oh, yeah. Okay. 
there's a Fiona Apple Felch Fetch the Bolt Cutters. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Nick Cave the Bad Seeds Ghosting. Mm-hmm. That's in there. So, um, and I list when we do revisions. I try and listen to as much of the re- uh, to the, to all of the revisions that I, I can do, so that I have some understanding when I'm sort of you know of the way the book is going, of the way the book is developing. But Birch and Ben, Rob, I have to say, I haven't heard every single album. No problem. Maybe I should. Maybe I should. Maybe I should now go in and fill in the gaps. We're on our way. It's our mission. Accompanying <laughs> podcast, right? You've got, yeah. You'll have one up on me. You'll have one up on me. You will have <laughs> two more years. Two years. Hey, guys, how long did you say this? Uh, your podcast been going? When did it start? Uh, 2017 November 2017 five 2017 years. okay yeah and then we'll and, have and two more I, years yeah we try to meet once a week we cover four albums per recording session uh but of course you know there are weeks that we need to take a break yeah I can imagine that mm-hmm. um well during the course so you and you're about half you're halfway through now it was well, exactly half the release no. schedule is different <laughs> the release schedule is different from editing because editing takes a very long yeah. time <laughs> and um. So we've recorded almost <laughs> yeah, 700. We've got a back. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. But well, so you've. We okay. just did a Fear of a Black Planet. Yes. Mm-hmm. Out of just out of interest, are there how many albums would you say you've you've listened to and you thought, well, why the hell was that in the book? Why on earth? Why did he just not save me from we having a, to spend? I think so, we probably so, have a, we have a list. We have, we have a list with we the spreadsheets and the names. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> an Excel sheet. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would uh, I, I would throw out Country Joe and the Fish. Why, why, why did you make me listen to that? Um, okay. Country Joe and the Fish. Well, yeah, I, I think I think that's fair. It's fair enough. I think there are probably better albums from that. What's that? 68, 69, something the, the, like that. That entire area is just a Rob was struggling was during the, uh, the psychedelic era. Yeah. You know, I think years. what what we run into, and I don't see how this would be avoidable. You know. The, the 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 group of us that gather from on, on the podcast we're all of a certain age group and mm. we're all from a certain geographic location so it feels like there's there's certain movements of music that really just resonated with you where it may have not had that same resonance for for other groups and that's not to cool. discount you know any of the music i think that it's hard to it's hard to avoid personal experience, you know. Mm. It's it's subjective. Yes, I get that. It's a valid point. It's a very valid point. And I'm sure if you, I mean, if you guys put together this album, this book, I'm sure you'd you'd have a completely different slant on it. You may well put less emphasis on earlier stuff and more emphasis on. I don't know. You know, later. It's pretty century. comprehensive. Yeah, There's yeah. so much in in there. I think we we also all are friends because of like shared musical interest in the first yeah, place. Sure. So we all true. have yeah. like music that we are biased that we like, and so seeing those threads through the books is the book is exciting and great. Mm-hmm. But then stuff that we maybe haven't listened to. I've we've also all discovered stuff from the book that I don't think we would have listened to otherwise, and that we really enjoy. Which part. is one yeah. of, like that's the best gift I yeah. think of the book for me. Linda and Richard Thompson, we had no idea existed, and it's that was. It's I want to see the bright lights tonight. It's one of the best records <laughs> yeah. I've ever heard. I think. So. Oh, I think yeah. since since listening since listening to I want to see the bright lights. How how many of us have acquired hard copies of that album? Like, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you see this is. Yeah. What it's all of. This is what it's all about. It's every book I've written, every music book I've written, I really want 
to pique somebody's interest. This is the bottom line for me. You pique somebody's interest and you send them out, you send them back to the music or you send them on to new music. You know, um, that's that's the best you can ever hope for for these books that I'm writing. You know, whether that's that biography of Bowie I did or this book of cult musicians or Music Quake um, or this. It's it's that's what that's that's hugely gratifying to me and exciting. And because I, because that's what I get from music books as well. You know, the best music books, they just they you can't wait to put the book down in a way and go off and hear the music that this guy's woman's talking to you about. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say that the new book, Music Quake, would have given us a lot of uh, insight into some of the albums that we were talking about uh, oh, yeah, earlier. Sure. Yeah. So it's it's sure. got it's it's just broadened the context. So it's a nice compendium, actually. To the it's a good uh, companion yeah. piece. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. That's definitely. Well, I wish I had podcast. There's your next podcast, right there. <laughs> I know. I know. I, w- I can't help but wonder if this had been the podcast instead. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'd be done. <laughs> yeah. Smaller scope <laughs> project, right? Yeah. If it was just a lot, the fifty. A lot shorter. Yeah. A lot shorter. Robert, I've got a couple of questions just regarding Ooh. regarding newer editions of the 1001 album book. I've got a first question, a follow up question. My first question is, how do you choose which albums? Because you always have to keep it at 1001. And there's mm. always going to be new albums being released in between your last edition and this edition. How do you choose which albums that you initially considered must hear before you die? now mm. can go kick rocks follow-up question <laughs> follow-up question have you ever released a new edition of the book and included an album that had already been released during prior editions of the book or are, are all the new it's all the new content stuff that has just come out since the latest edition uh so the second question I'll answer first. Yes, it's always new content. It's ne- we never we never put back an album that that was taken out. Uh, so every revision of the book, I think I think we usually put in. Oh God, I can't remember now. Maybe about ten new albums at the end of the book. Um, we never put we never repeat ourselves. We never put anything new in. Uh, the first part of your question, though, it's to be honest, it's a very dry, boring prosaic production cost <laughs> and the reason is this if we we can't so if i were going to do this book now i think probably actually I've, i was skimming through it earlier and i was thinking i'd i'd probably keep you know by and large it would be the same but there would be some things i would take out but i can't take things out that are um from the main body of the book and the, the, the only reason for this is it's nothing at all to do with creativity or aesthetics. It's because it would be too expensive production wise. All they can fiddle with is the last few folios of the book, maybe the last two folios or three folios or so, which is basically, you know, a folio is like four pages. So maybe they'll let me change 12 pages or something. But that's right at the end. This has, for me, an unfortunate knock on effect, which is that you are you are implying that something that was released this year, you already know <laughs> is as great as a Mars Davis album or as a Sly Stone album or as a Beyonce album or as a Missy Elliott album. You know that, you know that for sure. And that's why, and it's not so much that it's like, it's like, look, we, we want to, we do, this book has to be kept updated and refreshed. We want to give you some of the best albums that have just come out. I'm not sure whether 
all of them would necessarily be and some of them are retained to be fair we do another edition and one of the new ones that we brought in for the previous edition we keep because we think actually yeah this is this is standing up pretty well so far yeah let's we'll, we'll keep we've got to keep this in sometimes something even better comes along and you think mm, no that no, something has to go and it's really hard it's one of the hardest things it's almost as hard as making the original list in the first place deciding what to take out it's really difficult have you because, ever considered just changing the title to more than 1,001 albums? <laughs> <laughs> just add folios forever. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a lovely idea. Um, I wish, yeah, maybe. I would you know. want to get in there and actually revise if they would give you the production budget yeah. to do that? Yeah, I would because, I mean, you know, on the one hand, you could say, you know, when a when a, a book is done, it's done. It's a bit like, you know, you do an album, it's done. You don't mm -hmm. go back then and fiddle with the album too much. Um, but but I would. Yeah, there's stuff I put in there now that I think, well, did I just put that in there? Because you so you might ask, would I what would I take out? You might ask reasonably, what would I take out? And I've been having to think about that. So, for example, I've got Britney Spears's first album in there. Mm -hmm. Now, I can make a case for that album in that it was it was a pivotal gateway into what became a big big part of pop at the time of uh, you know she, in her wake you get people like Christina Aguilera and pop pop changed pop definitely changed and a lot of that was down to the impact of uh hit me baby one more time and her first album but if i looked at her first album in the cold light of day i would say well probably even if you're just going to restrict yourself to pop i could have come up with a you know, a different pop album that might have been more more satisfying overall. Because I mean, you know, the title track itself is 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 brilliant. It's it's a fantastic, it's a weird hit me baby one more time. That's such a strange idea, you that's know, in a in a weird way. That's all um, the Swedes, man. That's uh and and I mean that yeah. you could that argument of that record specifically is that production team is responsible for every hit song that's existed since they started yeah. with Britney. So, yeah. So it has, I mean, it has its place in history. You could argue on purely, you know, musical grounds. Maybe it's not the, maybe it's not the strongest, you know, entry from that year. I don't know, but I, so I could say, for example, this is just off the top of my, I could say, yeah, okay. I could have got rid of that. Uh, there at the, but what I found more, more to be the case looking back through the book uh, earlier today was that probably there are some, you know, there are just some artists you just can't have enough of. And maybe, maybe there's an argument that you could, I could have cut down on a few of them. I could have, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of Beatles. There's a lot of birds. There's there's enough, there's quite a lot of the birds, Neil Young, Leonard Cohen, even Sonic Youth. I think there's five Sonic Youth albums in there. Does the world do you? Elvis Costello albums do we have? Yes. There's a load of them, aren't there? Four. Hey, they're yeah. reading oh. like rabbits. There's loads of them. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not I could I could I could construct an argument. I mean, but the thing is, you know, yes, there's a lot of them. Yes, I could have cut some of those, but they're actually they're good albums. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Elvis Costello at his best is worth hearing, you know, in in depth, you yeah. know. So what's on the, the other side of that coin, Robert, though, there's only one Tom Petty album. And it's arguably yeah. <laughs> not the best Tom Petty album. Yes. Yes, there is that. There is that. <laughs> I can't tell. All I can tell you is I'm only human. I'm just, <laughs> That's fair. I'm just trying to do my best. Um, you're right. You're right. It's uh, it's a very difficult one to call. It's very very personal. Some people deserve to be heard in depth. There's an argument for you know 
do you go for a really diverse range of of, of artists which obviously you, you would like to do but would what if those artists aren't actually as brilliant as one particular artist who you really do need to know because what they've done in the context of music is more important than what these other diverse group of artists did. So you go deep on one artist or do you spread it around a bit and not tell the world about the other brilliant albums that this particular artist did? I don't know. I and mean, there's no answer to it. It's just yeah. a sort of, <laughs> you do what you do. You do what you do at the time, or I do what I did at the t- in, 19, in 2005 anyway. <laughs> their albums that you're passionate about but just didn't make the cut and then on the opposite side of there are there albums that you just do not like at all but you know (laughs) they need to be in there for the broad understanding well i think um I think personal taste personal taste the britney the britney album is a good example i don't have that album and breaking news i'm not likely to get that album album probably Probably won't be coming to my house anytime soon. Um, but I can see a, a historical context in, yep. in the terms of what we've been talking about for why it should be in there. I don't. I don't think. I don't. I mean, it, at the end of the day, it was my. It was my book. It was my book, <laughs> and I. I had the lion's share of deciding what went in there. Okay, and as I say, I, I've. I've heard pretty much every I haven't heard every single album but I've heard pretty much everything in there so it is by and large my taste mm-hmm. and I've got a, quite a broad taste you know I like class I like quote unquote classical music I've got a lot of time for a lot of jazz I can understand I'd like to say that I can understand why an album is important you know and that applies to the music quake book as well I can understand why can understand why John Cage's four minutes 33 seconds is important why it's not just a, a joke um, and I, I think I stand pretty much by by that the, by by the selection we made. You know, there's nothing I absolutely despise that's in there. And as I said, this is to a certain extent the the um, the evolution of a thousand one albums was was done in tandem with the writers themselves, who would very often point us in different directions and say, mm, "I can see what you're getting at, but in that case, you don't want that album. You want this album." And um, I'm, I was sometimes convinced by just a passionate argument. You know, if somebody said, "If you, you absolutely have to have this album, this is why this album is important. I know this one gets all the, the fanfare, but is this second of the follow-up albums where the really interesting stuff starts to happen, then I'll put it in there. So I, I, there really isn't that much that I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't include now, you know? There really yeah. isn't. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Next one. You know, we often receive, you know, hate mail for a particular <laughs> take uh, on a particular artist <laughs> or or group. Um, is do you get cornered at parties uh, by any particular group to say why why did not you not include this particular artist? Um, you know, in the book. I've never had I've never had hate mail. Maybe I just I don't get out enough. Not enough <laughs> about I don't know where I live, but um, I don't get a lot of hate mail about it. No, I get what I get is. I see reviews sometimes where a guy comes, well, you know, I picked this book up and I started reading it 
And then I realized after a while, I realized I've been there for half an hour reading it. And and I get more that sort of thing. I get more people being, I think people probably, I mean, it's a list book. There's a lot of list books in the world. Mm-hmm. I can imagine people getting a bit sniffy about it initially, maybe picking it up and looking at it and go, okay, what have you got to say? And they'll flick to their first, you know, their favorite album. Has he got this album in here? And if I do, it's, oh, okay, well, what's he got to say about it then? And blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and they read, uh, okay, yeah. Well, uh, well blah, 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 they got this album in it. I bet they haven't got this album in it. And then they go off and <laughs> I think it. I think it generates comment it hasn't generated a lot of hate which i'm, I'm glad about the yeah. world doesn't, doesn't we'll, need any more we'll, we'll take that on for you <laughs> <laughs> i don't I, you know it's it's not a bad thing if it generates passion if i don't like the word hate, but if it generates passionate debate i'm i'm all for that i'm yes. all for that i think that it's like you the the podcast gets that criticism when it's something that somebody holds really dear that, that yes that we specifically did not respond to right absolutely so, it's more, um, yeah. How, they're they're how, glad it's in the book. Maybe just we're not as glad that it's yeah. in the book. <laughs> yeah, we, we we are all very much music enthusiasts. Like uh, we we've spent most of our free time of our adult lives listening to music. At the same time, you know, we're, we're recording four four episodes a week. So sometimes we'll be going into an episode on uh, like an album that maybe was a blind spot for me and i've listened to it maybe three or four times over the course of seven days and i'm talking about it into a microphone and someone who's listening it's like the album they hold nearest and dearest and our whole format is we're having casual conversations to spark debate you know like to to, just to to it's like a book club you know (laughs) we, we we have our homework over throughout the week and then we get together and just talk about how we felt about it you know uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, but you found sparks, and that's all that matters. Yes. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, somehow, somehow, in the in my last forty years of existence, liking all of these bands that are in their same wheelhouse, I had missed out on sparks. Oh. And, yeah, and I blame my friends. I blame my oh, friends I'm who sure. like sparks. I've, I've been at parties where Sparks was playing at that you were at. I'm sure. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure. I'd heard Sparks in passing and been like danced around. Like, oh, this was cool, you know. But uh, yeah, it 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 took it took the book for me to sit down and press play on Kimono My House, and I never turned back after that. Oh, yeah. I'm no. really glad. I know exactly what you mean. I think there are some artists that are um, they just seem to exist in their own world. Yeah. And uh, and Sparks, Sparks really, really rarely put a foot wrong. You know, Sparks, are, uh, um, this town ain't big enough for the both of us, but Sparks are also, also the number one, <clears throat> excuse me, number one song in heaven. Yep. That's the same band. And it's a complete sounds like apart from the vocals, it sounds like a completely different band uh, or beat the clock, you know, and it's they, they've got a they're. That you know, you can dive deep into Sparks. I think they're very, they're very good. They're yeah, very absolutely. good. That's a wonderful album. That really wonderful album. Yeah, I should say, you know, uh, people who are passionate, they also contact us. Say, oh, I picked up the book. It's really great. Um, you know, this or or they'll contact and say, I've never heard this. I'm so you know, another uh, person wrote in and said. Oh my gosh, Sparks is the best band I've ever heard. I just bought all their albums. Have you heard this live, <laughs> rare live bootleg, you know, album? They, they said they They're spent, really engaged. they got yeah. really engaged on those things. Uh, Os Mutantes, you know, yeah. just those bands that are just slightly oh, outside of people's yeah. like uh, purviews. 
And so it's been really rewarding to to hear people get passionate about music. I mean, that's something that I mean, I think we all are there, but I usually tell people, you know, yeah, it's all about finding your next favorite band, essentially. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. I think one of the one of the uh one of the things the book uh does, I think, is that you may in your life have come across a certain number of bands that you really, really like, but the book can help fill in some gaps. So if you you may love Tom Petty, but you may not have heard the Birds, Notorious Bird Brothers album, but they're very closely linked, you know, for all sorts of reasons. You might like, you know, you might like, you might like, I don't know, you might like Elvis, but you might not know that Elvis, a lot of Elvis's early stuff was covers of stuff done by, you know, artists you may not have heard of, mm-hmm. like um, Arthur Big Boy Crudup. You know, and that may send you off to investigate stuff like that. You know, you may think rock and roll started. I mean, this you could play this game till the cars come home, but you right. can, may think rock and roll started <laughs> with Rocket 88. But then you may think rock and roll started with Sister Rosetta Tharp, Tharp back in mm. the 40s or the 30s. You know what I mean? And, and, and this book, I hope another the things I hope this book does is to help fill in some of those gaps and make connections. All right. I want to be uh, respectful of the time. I will uh, list off the albums that we feel should have been in there. Just a couple of them. Just just a couple (laughs) of them. All right. So the albums we have so far, Harry Belafonte, Calypso, first gold album. We all uh, love that record. We We're love all, it so much. We love it. <laughs> it, was, it was, it, you know, it's, it was so early in the book. It, it, it would have fit so early in the book. I think that was the first one that we got to that we felt was. We're just like, where is it? <laughs> we had Marion yeah, McCabe yeah, <laughs> with Harry yeah. Fonte's backing singers, and we were like, well, wait, he, he's, he's in here, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so I thought that was funny. Um, okay. These are in no order, obviously. Uh, Whitney Houston, the Body God's s- soundtrack. Bodyguard, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Weezer's yeah. Blue Album. Uh, NXS Kick. Ornette Coleman, Shape of Jazz to Come, personal favorite. Oh, uh, yeah. That could have gone in there. Yeah, yeah, Etta yeah. James, At Last. Oh, go Sorry, ahead. just to interrupt, but the Ornette Coleman, I, I've, I've got in Music Quake. Yeah. Um, and uh, but you know it could have there's several albums I could have mentioned of his in 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 music way, um, yeah I'll I'll, to- I'll totally take that I'll totally take that. Mm-hmm. Well, good, mm-hmm. a good we're not course. scolding you. This yeah. is not a this is not. <laughs> no, just... I know, no, I know, but it's 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 uh, you're absolutely right. That could have gone in there. Yeah, I can understand yeah. that totally. The, the strange thing is, um, Spy versus Spy by John Zorn, who I really, I love, I love John Zorn. Record. Yeah, we we loved it. <laughs> and it obviously is a completely different thing. But we thought it was uh, sort of ironic that, you know, Ornette Coleman was not in yeah. there, but he's, you know, covering Ornette Coleman. So we we're kind of like, that's that's interesting. Uh, Etta James at last. I have uh, Huey yes. Lewis in the news, sports. Uh, no BOC. Okay. Okay. <laughs> 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 knew we'd get that one uh, yeah, yeah blue oyster cult yeah so. very learning a lot about you all yeah. <laughs> exactly. a blue oyster call fire of unknown origin uh, um, yeah yeah i can see that yeah uh yeah i, I thought uh so, more dub maybe Lee's uh lee perry and the upsetter super ape something like that um yeah uh, we yeah. said the breeders uh last splash or pod uh, and then uh, one, Kyle, uh, who's not here, he would have died on the hill of Queensryche Operation Mind Crime. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
uh, and then <laughs> just general, I think we observed like uh, the Caribbean dub Exotica, which I'm I'm a fan of uh, Exotica music and surf rock music. Yeah. Were, yeah. were had a little mm-hmm. less than or yeah yeah surf. I, I'm with you on surf rock. I mean, there's uh, yeah we could have done a lot more of that kind of thing, I suppose. But then, as I said before, it, it's it's difficult to. It's difficult to make those hard decisions about what you what you do and don't include, and also to spread yourself evenly. As I tried, as I mentioned, in the context of music, right? not not concentrating on 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 one specific year mm-hmm. and load overloading it with stuff, even though mm-hmm. if it was an important year, overloading certain genres or overloading certain periods. You know? I mean, I'm guilty. I I'm guilty of. Uh, in there are certain preferences that I, as 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 I was in charge, I was the general editor. I brought to the book. I've got a massive soft spot for psychedelia, mm-hmm. a huge soft spot for psychedelia. And for me, I mean, nineteen. You, we, we mentioned uh, Ben. I think you and I were talking about nineteen seventy-seven earlier. Well, nineteen sixty-seven. I could have. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, you know, where do you stop? You've got Jimi Hendrix's first album and, and Sergeant Pepper. You've got the Velvets' first album. I mean, you know, and there's so much more you can. You can put into that, um, and I, I totally take your point. These, these are all things that could, in an alternative, in the multiverse, yeah. <laughs> where some another Rob Dimry is doing a thousand hours, he, he would have those in there. Yeah. Merch. Rest, rest assured, he would. He would have a lot more surf rock. Surf rock, actually. You see, just having this conversation, I don't need even to read, but having a conversation with you, and you just mentioned surf rock. I haven't thought about surf rock for ages. Now I'm thinking, my God, I've got a, I've got a box set of surf rock downstairs. Yeah. Just mad. A lot of it's the, you know, very, very. It's almost identical. Some of the songs, but that doesn't matter. You only need two or three, yeah, to to add a spark to your day. Yeah, so, ventures. Yeah, yeah, we're some pretty big ventures and shadows fans over here. Oh yeah, the ventures. I think the yeah, yeah, totally. I think the ventures are a bit wilder than the shadows, but then the shadows did Apache. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> got that. Robert, do you have time for, for just one quick question? I'm okay. just curious. Of course I do. I'm really, uh, I'm not that brioche, you know, don't <laughs> worry about the brioche. I, 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 it was Birch or Rob that mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that kind of we, we were talking about our goal is to to find like your next favorite band. Like that's part of the, that's part of the joy mm-hmm. for us. What was your first favorite band? What got you, what got you on this path of playing music and writing about music? What excited you first? Well, you know, I, I think I liked a lot of bands, um, different singles and what have you. And, and I, you know, I, I, really, I loved the top of the pops on the on British TV when I was younger. You know, I, 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 I was born at a time when glam rock was, was kicking off first of all so that you would see i know <laughs> died and got to heaven um there, there was there were bands you would see bands like bowie or t-rex or or even like the glitter band on tv all the time and and they seemed like they were having a lot of fun so to a very young child that looked great it looked like a big party on top of the pops and all yeah. of these bands are playing at this party and what could be better i think to be honest the first band i really 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 felt was my band even, even though it was ridiculous for me to say that because um well because I'll say why uh was REM I got I got their second album first perversely I got um <laughs> reckoning first and I I I it was like you you've discovered this secret that nobody else knows I I come from Cheltenham I live in London but I come from Cheltenham originally which is uh 
which is a town in Gloucestershire in, in the West Country in London, in, in, of, of England. And um, I felt I, I nobody else knew REM in my town apart from me. And I loved his voice. His voice just seemed to be like, you know, tapped into that old, old America, that kind of Americana style. It kind of, there was something rootsy and gritty about his voice. But the way he was singing, the fact that you had to really strain to work out what he was singing. Actually, you wouldn't be able to work out what he was singing about anyway, because he was deliberately mumbling. And, but it, seemed, it, seemed, yeah. it seemed to conjure up a, a whole, and this for me, this is what the best things in a thousand one albums and music quake. This is what they do. They give you a world. They give you a new world. They pop open a little door to a new world, a new way of being, a new way of, of existing, of thinking. And REM proposed one of those kinds of worlds. And then I went, then I discovered Murmur and I thought, my God, I mean, they've got this lump of vegetation on the front cover. What's that all about? I mean, you know, that's, you know, and I didn't realize until afterwards that it's something particular to that area where they came from in the South, Athens, Georgia, and all that kind of thing. Tons and it does have a context for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has a context for it. But 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 they're, they're just the the sound that was that has that jingle jangle, a massive sac- a sucker for that sort of trebly, jingly, jangly guitars. It had that, but actually it was a bit post-punky as well. So it wasn't just retro 60s stuff. And I just found the whole idea of them really interesting. You know, I found I found that there was a it was like that whole thing of they're a gang you'd like to join. Mm-hmm. And I think you get this from when you're really, really young. Right. I think when you my son, uh, occasionally I'll show him like clips of the banana splits or something like that or the monkeys or stuff like that. And and. That's a little he, you can I can feel that he's think he thinks he's part of their little group, that he's part of their band. That he, he, he could imagine himself riding around on those buggies that the banana splits ride around on at the start and the end. <laughs> and 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 it's like, the, you know, the, the, the Clash being a gang, the Beatles being a gang, the Mary Chain being a gang. They look a certain way. They behave a certain way. Um, they 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 are a particular way of living in this world. In the same way that a Phil Spector production is a particular view of the world. The Velvet Underground is a particular view of the world. Um, and that's what that's what really got to me. The first time I thought in those terms was when I heard R.E.M. So for me, it was R.E.M. I lost a lot of interest in R.E.M. as the years went on. I think I think when I I. You know how sometimes with a band or an artist, you just trust them. After a while, you love them so much, you think, okay, whatever you bring out, I'm I'm with you. I'm on your I'm on your train. I'll buy it. I'll totally buy it on faith. And the first time for me that that REM didn't deliver was probably something like Monster, where I thought, oh, I'm mm, I'm not sure about this. It seems a little bit too obvious, a little mm-hmm. bit too. I mean, they'd been on a major label for a while then, and they were making more bit bigger, more articulate statements, I suppose. But their music, their musical language, seemed kind of like well trodden by that. That says so it seems like too familiar. Whereas their early albums are anything but familiar. They're mm-hmm. constantly saying, "Oh, you, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you a little. You've heard something like this, but not quite like this, and something like this, but not quite like this." And I found that really intriguing, and I really dived deeply into them. I really did. Um, so yes, sorry, Ben. The, no, the, the answer is REM. <laughs> I like that. And it seems like to, to go on your point, it seems like by Monster, they're playing stadiums, so yes. they're making yeah. music to fill stadiums. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Like the like the 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 murmury jangly stuff might not have 
sufficed at that point. I don't know if it's a conscious conscious decision one makes or just like an evolution with like the evolution of the crowd. But yeah, I'd absolutely get your point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Um, My pleasure. Enjoy the banana. Enjoy the banana brioche. Yeah, the <laughs> banana brioche. <laughs> I hope it turns out well. Yeah. All right. We want to thank Robert Demery for being on. You can follow him on Instagram and Facebook, and obviously order the book "Music Quake: The Most Disruptive Moments in Music." It's very good. It's a great read. It's a great companion to the album book. Yeah, too. and if you don't already have one thousand one albums you must hear before you die, I have no idea why you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're, a, a new edition came out in 2021. Yeah. yeah. So. We will not be covering those <laughs> albums at the end of it. But. And uh, on the show notes, um, I'm going to put a link to a way to order it from our local bookstore, Carmichael's Books in Louisville, Kentucky. Yep. But obviously, you know, get it from your own local bookstore. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.